Today from the Global Lane, electronic vote manipulation. Most secure election in U.S. history. You wouldn't allow your daughter to, you know, to, to just use a basic software package that had this lack of security. Assassination retaliation delayed. Is Iran on the brink of a crisis? I don't think Iran can survive its internal issues. Coronavirus vaccine just days away. Why these college students say they won't take it. And COVID earns at the White House? And it's all right here on the Global Lane. The clock may be running out for President Donald Trump. With less than two weeks to go before the Electoral College meets to decide the presidency, can the Trump legal team and other lawyers prove vote fraud? Appearing on 60 Minutes this week, former cybersecurity chief Christopher Krebs claimed the November election was the most secure in American history. We can go on and on with all the farcical claims that uh, alleging uh, interference in the 2020 election, but the proof is in the ballots. Here with us is Rich Higgins. Mr. Higgins is former director of strategic planning at the National Security Council. He currently serves as president of HTG Security, an information warfare consulting service, and his book is The Memo, 20 Years Inside the Deep State Fighting for America First. Rich, it's a pleasure to have you with us. We just heard comments from former cybersecurity chief Chris Krebs, who said this election was the most secure in U.S. history, yet cybersecurity expert retired Army Colonel Phil Waldron just testified in Arizona this week that votes weren't, quote, as secure as your Venmo account. What do you think? Well, I think that uh, Mr. Krebs is uh, full of it. Um, I think he's compromised in multiple ways, not the least of which is he has representatives from Dominion Voting Service on his advisory staff at the Department of Homeland Security, which is just theatrically absurd. And then, you know, as to Colonel Waldron's commentary, the lack of audit logs uh, in these machines is just, it's remarkable. I mean, you know, you, you, wouldn't, allow, um, you wouldn't allow your daughter to, you know, to to just use a basic software package that had this lack of security. I mean, it's the, it's absolutely absurd where we're at. Do you really believe Joe Biden received 80 million votes more than Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton? I know former federal prosecutor attorney Sidney Powell says that foreign players manipulated our vote totals through Dominion voting systems. So what evidence exists to prove her allegations? Well, we have a, um, a mountain of evidence that goes to, you know, some specific, I'm not a lawyer, but the circumstantial evidence is there, the data, you know, the digital evidence is there, um, you know, just the eyewitness testimony is there. Insofar as um, Sidney Powell's specific allegations about Dominion Voting Services, you have to do a bit of a history lesson and go back to Venezuela and understand that uh, when Chavez came to power in 2003, uh, he had a six-year term, and about halfway through that, in 2006, he wanted to have a referendum on his leadership. And to do so, he wanted to assure his own victory. And Smartmatic evolved from that uh, through a series of machinations and uh, procurements. Um, the software, the back-end software that, that you know, um, Dominion Voting Services rides on was developed by Smartmatic. And so the question becomes, um, what were the holes what were the you know what were the specific features built into Dominion? We know they were able to switch votes. We know they were able to weight votes. We know they were able to fraction vote. All these different capabilities. I think what Sydney's getting to, and I think she's right, is you know 
we really don't trust these softwares. Now, there are many countries around the world that have banned uh, digital voting. Israel, for example, you know, they just do not allow these electronic platforms and because they know they're too insecure. How about China? I mean, we've heard about Venezuela, Chavez, Maduro, Cuba. You mentioned that. But China, some people say China played a role in this as well. What do you think? Well, when I've mentioned Venezuela, you know, I immediately think of Cuba. I mean, they're they're and they're basically one and the same, at least in the uh, intelligence and security world. They work very closely together, both of it, which are client states of China uh, with long relationships. Now, just being reported today were um, some preliminary reports that up to $400 million was invested by a Chinese investment fund into the parent company of Dominion Virginia Voting Services. And so you know, th there's, there's just a lot of questions here that have to be answered, and we're on a very tight timeline. So I think you know, the, the challenge for the Trump administration is to address these long-term issues, but also to make a compelling case that the short-term fraud really occurred, that it wasn't randomized fraud as happens in every election, that there was a purpose and intent behind it. For example, when six states stopped counting at the same time, somebody told them to do that, right? And it gets into what did the DNC know and not know? Who were they working with? Why was a, a representative of Dominion on Joe Biden's campaign staff? A lot of questions that have to be answered here. Now, Dominion spokesperson Michael Steele debunked election interference and any connection to foreign countries, Venezuela, Germany, Spain, etc. He called it all conspiracy theory. Yet a Dominion contractor in Detroit said machines there were connected to the Internet. Others say votes went to servers in Frankfurt, Germany and elsewhere. So how do you prove, though? Rich, electronic vote manipulation, when by design it may be done so as not to be detected. Right. I think the, the, the way you prove it is you go back and you audit the logs, but they don't give you those logs, right? I mean, just the lack of presence. It, it goes to Mr. Krebs' comment. I mean, it's just a theatrically absurd comment to make that this was the most secure election in history. Um, you know, insofar as the the fraudulent activity, though, the thing that I think happened here, I can't prove this, is that the audit, you know, the audit itself will reveal a couple of things. You I mean this is a you know a hand counted, audited, signatures matching audit, not just a ballot recount. Um, it will show that when the stop order was given on the night of the election, and these massive ballot dumps happened. And then post the ballot dumps, the algorithm that they were running was just sufficient to maintain Biden's, you know, less than a percent lead across this, which was, you know, completely breaking from the pattern before the ballot dumps. And I think what we have to do is we have to go back and we have to use statistics and math and science to actually show this, right? The left loves to use science. Well, here you go. Here's the data science. It's proving that this is a statistical impossibility. Um, you know, the, the question going forward really, though, is, you know, how, how do you come back from this, right? I mean, it's, it's, if they're willing to do this to retain power, what, are, you know, what else are they willing to do? I was going to ask then, uh, Rich, no matter who's sworn in as president January 20th, all of this has kind of focused our attention on election security or insecurity. So what do we do now? What do we do to protect the uh, vote integrity in the future, especially with those two Senate runoff elections coming next month uh, in Georgia? Look, I think that I think that the problem is is large enough that it requires a national effort to um, to maybe federalize at least the standards through which these elections are conducted. 
Um, you know, I'm not a big believer in the federal government coming down and imposing on these states certain rules and strictures. But, you know, again, it goes back to the, you know, banning the mass mailing of ballots, uh, just the, the extra constitutional nature of the activities of the past year under COVID, of which the election is a part of it, are just, it's just mind boggling where we're at. And I think uh, from, from a technological standpoint, you know, you can fix this by requiring audit logs as part of the uh, voting system, or we could just, you know, simply go back to paper ballots if we have to. Um, you know, I get thinking this is one of those things where uh, the low tech answer may be the right answer. Okay, the book is The Memo, 20 Years Inside the Deep State, Fighting for America First. Rich Higgins, thank you for sharing your time and insights today. We appreciate it. Thanks, sir. Iran is blaming Israel for assassinating its top nuclear scientist. Mohsen Fakhrizadeh was murdered while traveling with his wife in a bulletproof car. Witnesses say they saw an explosion followed by a barrage of bullets. Iranian President Rouhani pledges retaliation. At the right time, the relevant officials will respond to this crime. Joining us with more is U.S. Army retired Lieutenant Colonel Sargis Sangari. Mr. Sangari was born in Iran. He knows the country well. And he currently serves as CEO of the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement. Sargas, it's good to talk to you again. So President Rouhani says at the right time, Iran will retaliate with the possibility of a new U.S. president coming in now. So how long do you think they'll hold off and why? Well, it's good to be here, Gary. I think they're going to hold off because they really don't know what is happening internally. Iran's foreign policy has nothing to do with how U.S., Europe, or other nations conduct their foreign policy. It is really tied to domestic internal issues that they're having a hard time grappling with. If you notice, since uh, Friday, when the top nuclear scientist for Iran was killed, Iran has proposed multiple scenarios of who may have killed him and why. And in one of the process, they have even blamed Israel for the killing. And this, uh, they have actually strengthened Israel within the region that is trying to strike uh, deals with uh, all the Arab nations that are now lined up to be able to not only make peace with Israel, but have economic deals with Israel. So internal issues of the failing of the government is the reason why we are where we are today with Iran. Sargas, if in fact this was Israel that took this action against another Iranian nuclear scientist, was it necessary to do that in your opinion? What else could have been done to slow or prevent Iran uh, developing a nuclear bomb? Well, we don't know who has killed them, first of all. If Israel has killed them, uh, Israel's showing that it has claws and it can reach out and touch anyone to include even in, in Iran. The issue here is that if Iran's saying that Israel did it, then Iran cannot even protect its own borders, its own people internal to its own state. Uh, this is internal issues that are being faced in Iran. Iran has painted itself into a corner where the hardliners do not know how to be able to work with the international community. The problem here is that uh, you have multiple different factions within Iran. You have the Revolutionary Guards, the hardliners. You got the standing uh, army that uh, is in charge of the border securities. You have multiple intelligence services in Iran themselves. And then you also, at the same time, have the hardliner president with his cabinet and also the laws that have made it very difficult for anyone who is not a hardliner to be able to run in next year's elections. This is what has caused the problems in Iran, where these 80 million people that live in Iran are now hanging 
on a thread hoping to see what the possible outcome of the U.S. election might be. Even in that capacity, I don't think Iran can survive its internal issues. If he is sworn in as our 46th president, how likely is it that Joe Biden will try to rejoin the Iran nuclear deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action? I think it would be very difficult. Iran is not just bankrupt. Its internal economy has collapsed. And this process, as it's trying to strike deals to possibly with the hardliners selling uh, Iran to China for $400 billion, it is very difficult for us to see what the possible outcome would be with a Biden administration, which Iran knows that might be nothing more than a two-year administration, given our government changes every two years, at least in the House of Representatives. Okay, on another challenge for Biden, lying ahead right next door to Iran is Afghanistan. Do you think there should be a ceasefire between the government of Afghanistan and the Taliban before peace talks continue? Also, in your opinion, what needs to happen uh, before all U.S. troops are returned home? Well, the United States can leave Afghanistan as easily as it entered Afghanistan. However, with that said, it can never be separate from Afghanistan. Afghanistan has three major players in it. One is the uh, ties that it has historically with Iran, and these are historical ties. Dari is actually the language that was spoken in the uh, courts of the king, Dariush, uh, which uh, Afghanistan was part of the Iran landscape historically while it was an empire. So that relationship has always been there. The language is still there being used. The other tie is to China. China has invested heavily, especially in the mining fields of Afghanistan. And China has had that historical relationship when it comes to the Silk Road that it uses Afghanistan for the land piece of the Belt and Road Initiative. And then, of course, the ties that started in Afghanistan once the Soviet Union invaded. So we can leave Afghanistan, but we can never leave Afghanistan when it comes to the political need of staying there. If you turn it over to China, China will not only take over Afghanistan, but will take over Iran as it's trying to purchase Iran to a tune of $400 billion. It has already uh, pretty much paid and has bought out every member of the parliament of uh, Pakistan who has business ties to Chinese companies. That means if you lose Afghanistan to China, that means you will definitely lose in a near future, Iran and Pakistan to China and then virtually the entire Middle East. Okay, we'll have to wait and see what happens here with a new administration or a continuation of the Trump administration. Sargas Ngari, CEO of the Near East Center for Strategic Engagement. Thank you, Sargas. We appreciate you sharing your insights. The first batch of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine is now in the United States, waiting emergency food and drug administration approval. An FDA green light may come as early as next week. 40 million doses are expected to be ready for distribution in January. So what do college students think of this historic, fast-track development of a vaccine? Campus Reform video correspondent Ophelia Jacobson recently talked about the vaccine with students at Georgetown University. She found that most didn't want to give credit to Donald Trump for advancing an effective prevention in record time. Would you credit this accomplishment to the Trump administration? I would not credit it to the Trump administration. Uh, no. <laughs> Probably not. I personally think that they haven't been doing a great job with dealing with the coronavirus. I would not credit it to the Trump administration just based on, like, how he's been, um, like, 
how all the planning's been going on so far? Uh, no, I don't think so. And what did the college students say about actually taking the vaccine once it's available? Well, here to set us straight from the University of Florida in Gainesville is Ophelia Jacobson. Hi, Ophelia. It's good to meet you. So you were surprised by those responses that you heard. Did you receive some positive comments? Uh, why did you think most were negative? So a majority were negative, and I went to Georgetown University to see if these students, again, would be willing to give the Trump administration credit for working with these private companies to develop this vaccine. And what I found was just another example of how college students don't seem to recognize any good that comes from the administration. At the Leadership Institute's campus reform, we found that college students have a strong dislike for the administration and the president, even working with pharmaceutical companies to develop this vaccine. At the end of the day, developing this vaccine for the coronavirus should be a bipartisan accomplishment that all Americans should be proud of. But it's unfortunate that politics have distorted these college students' minds into thinking that everything that the Trump administration says or does can't be trusted. Well, how about actually taking a vaccine once it is available to the general public? What did the students tell you? Right. So I asked students exactly that question. If a vaccine were to be developed by the end of the year, would you be willing to take it? And a lot of them said no. One girl specifically told me that she would not be taking the vaccine simply because, well, it was developed under the Trump administration. She told me that she was skeptical of everything the president says or does. And for that reason, she would be skeptical of the vaccine as well. But I can guarantee you if the same vaccine were to have been developed under a Biden administration, the students would have been first in line to take it. Yes, actually, it's been developed by Pfizer and Moderna, others. And you are at the University of Florida. So tell us about another subject. You asked students there about a potential Trump second term agenda, but you told them it was Joe Biden's. How did they respond and what did they say once they found out it was actually Trump's agenda? Yeah, so I brought up a, a couple of things from Trump's, uh, you know, his agenda and his accomplishments, actually. I told them that they were actually Biden's at first, and they all seemed to jump on board with that idea, agreeing that they were good ideas and that they should be implemented in the government. But when I told them that they were actually Trump's, you see their minds do a complete 180, and all of a sudden, they aren't so sure of the accomplishments anymore. Simply, again, it's tied to the name Trump, and students have been conditioned by their professors and by their peers to hate that everything that is associated with him and his administration. Even though they may like those policies. So, Ophelia, although many college students are still not on campus, many are doing their classes remotely online, and like you, if they are on campus, they're still doing them from their dorms online. So you say a leftist doctrination is continuing. So how is that happening when students aren't actually there uh, to attend speeches and hear special speakers and events, that kind of thing? Well, we have online events on campus, you know, on Zoom, and, you know, we have our lectures online, and professors are still able to voice their opinion, and especially in the election year of 2020, a lot of professors use that opportunity to express their own opinion instead of actually focusing on the lectures and the content that they are actually paid to teach. And because of that, this is a trend that we've been seeing at Campus Reform. A lot of professors will voice their own opinion and students will take that in without ever actually going out to do their own research and learning how to think for themselves. Ophelia Jacobson, thanks for setting us straight today. Thank you so much. Unless there's an electoral college or legal miracle, it looks like this is Melania Trump's final Christmas as First Lady. During her first Christmas at the White House, Mrs. Trump's critics tweeted out contempt for her Christmas decorations. They said she had a potential penchant for, quote, existential dread.
And then in 2018, more disdain, this time about trees lining the east colonnade of the White House, adorned in Christmas red, a pension for blood, they said. And this year, The Guardian reported Melania Trump swapped horror for tradition with a lighter approach to Christmas decor. They described her America the Beautiful theme as a break from previous years, which featured blood-red trees and bare branches. Folks, this is just more unrelenting hatred against the president and his wife. Believe me, if this had been Michelle Obama or Jill Biden, these same people and members of the media would have called the White House decorations exceptional, avant-garde displays, brilliant breaks from holiday tradition. Now, I say holiday because the media has a hard time calling it Christmas. And on rare occasions when they actually force themselves to utter the word Christmas, it's always in a secular sense, right? For them, it's about Santa, holiday, not Jesus. It may be only sympathy for what they believe is a departing first lady, but the New York Times declared this year's decorations as strikingly normal. Still, one person on Twitter took note of the vases lining the East Colonnade, tweeting, how fitting the urns of COVID Christmas. Folks, I love this year's America the Beautiful theme. Here's a short clip. Take a look and you decide whether or not you agree. Thank you, Mrs. Trump, for bringing beauty, elegance, and faith to the White House. If your departure comes on January 20th, I know millions of Americans will miss you, your charm, grace, and humility. May God be with you, and you always with him. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, Parlor, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.